latest podcast in our Thought Leadership series. I'm Jennifer Jones, Director of Consultancy Services at Collingwood, and today I have with me Matt Beaton to discuss the topic of leadership through technological change. Matt is a seasoned executive whose accolades include COO of National Express, MD at Serco, and Group and Global COO at VIX. He's been awarded and educated at institutions such as Harvard Business School, Cambridge University, the Royal Academy and Coventry University. Uh, Matt now owns APT Business Solutions and he advises organisations in the public and private sector, both in the UK and abroad. He specialises in transport, smart technology, leadership and business turnaround. He's also about to publish his book, Leadership and Emotional Business, on the importance of emotional and social intelligence in leadership. Good morning, Matt. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for taking the time this morning to talk with us on leadership through technological change. Your subject's already generated quite a lot of interest with TED Talks and the BBC. Your recent talks in Roma Monte Carlo have been a great success. What was it about this subject that interested you so much? Um, well, I guess leadership in general has always fascinated me, even from an early age around sport, especially around the importance of emotional intelligence. But technology is growing so fast now, so exponentially, that you know it's made leadership fascinating. Um, and it will get more fascinating as leadership evolves. So um, initially, technology-affected leadership uh, was around communication becoming more electronic. Mm-hmm. Uh, electronic, but you know, as you start to work in smart payments and smart cities, I realised you know the ways in which leadership becomes affected is endless, and that will continue to have a huge impact um, in leadership as businesses go forward. So, in your view, then, what is the most important characteristic for leaders of the future? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question and probably one with a lot of answers. But if I was going to whittle it down to four, I'd say, firstly, definitely vision. You know, given the incremental change, um, it's a must to have a, a vision so that you don't stray, so that you don't not see the wood for the trees and get lost in the amount of change that's happened. Uh, so the vision needs to be there, it needs to be compelling, and people need to feel excited by it. Um, and ultimately... This will allow leaders to use technology to help reach that vision rather than continue to chase the latest technology just because it's there. Um, and it's easy to do because technology is changing so fast and it's faster than our ability to keep up with it. So I'd say one is vision. Two is agility. Um, I'm not talking about agility in the technological development sense. I'm talking about it quite literally and generally. It's important for leaders in the fields of change to be agile. The vision is going to set the path, and ultimately, for lots of reasons, there'll be lumps and bumps, peaks and troughs in that path, especially in technology. Um, and the fact is, it's difficult. Change is difficult. And even if we're honest, the most agile of leaders fear the unknown. That's just natural. So business agility has to be a key component in tomorrow's leaders. So that's number two. Number three, we have to accept that we're limited. And I guess that's a strange thing to say, but leaders put pressure on themselves to be seen as the the girl of everything. And at best, that's just stifling for the company and the individual. But at worst, it's disengaging the team. So giving accountability to staff, creating that open environment, or what I call climate, help 
them achieve their goals and push that tipping point between developing yourself and others. And paradoxically, that's the thing that's going to help leaders achieve their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the last one, number four, I would say you have to accept that technology is limited. Again, it's a real strange thing to say because technology, technology is so binary. It's black and white. It's, it literally is ones and zeros. So we could say that artificial intelligence is making that less binary, but that's got a long way to go. And in fact, it learns from human behavior. Um, and there's its limitation. It's not human. It doesn't have a heart. It doesn't have feeling or motivation, and therefore it's flawed. Because those are the three or four things that are the most powerful tools in our toolbox. Yeah, Business just, at the end of the day is all about people. You know, even in tech companies, it's all about people. So, re- regardless of the changes that are going on around us, not losing that human connection is so important. Yeah, it's just a limitation, but in, in, in a different way, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so how can leaders in business then identify, you know, these great individuals, these leaders of the future from the crowd, you know, these leaders with vision, agility and, and, and acceptance? Yeah, I guess I'm a little nervous answering that to you guys at Collingwood who do this stuff all the time. <laughs> but in my own personal view uh, and in my experience, regardless of the skills that you require, I'd always hire a drive and enthusiasm over qualification. You know, ideally you want want both, but those individuals are really few and far between in my experience. However, if somebody has the drive and enthusiasm to make something work in a team, it's really powerful. You know, they're going to learn skills to make things work. And so in the short term, there might be some development needs, but enthusiastic people shine and they stand out. They can always learn stuff. I read... um, I read somewhere recently that uh, skills are a perishable asset, and as much as 80% of the things that we know today will be out of date in 10 years' time. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, and if leaders want a longer-term sustainable environment, hiring for skills over driving enthusiasm has got to be counterproductive. So you need to look for those shiny people who have that uh, drive and enthusiasm to make things work. Yeah, I, f- I f- fully agree with you. It's uh, I heard that there's uh, <coughs> the the children today in school will be getting jobs that 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 just don't even exist at the moment. You know, and yeah. it is about you know that that's it is not about skills. It is about attitude and and, and hiring with that um, with that in mind. So yeah. in in terms of strategic priority, what do you feel then is the biggest challenge for CEOs of the future, and and, and how you know it, as leaders. Do you think they can overcome them in a in a tech environment? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess firstly you have to consider what the scale of change might be. So recently I said in in TEDx Monte Carlo that computing power is developing so fast now that it's said to be doubling every twelve to eighteen months. If that's true, and we compound that growth curve over ten years, I can. Computing power is going to be a million times more powerful than it is today in 10 years' time. So the changes businesses could see in that period in this technological world are hard to comprehend. And that's why business agility is so key and why hiring the right people with driving enthusiasm to make that change is so key. Because whether we like it or not, we have to change. Every business does. 
the, the world of it isn't broke, so don't fix it, doesn't exist anymore. Um, and the evidence is all around us. Recently, in the news, I was reading um, an interview with the CEO of Nokia. And in the words of their CEO, he said that they didn't do anything wrong, per se. They just didn't continue to develop. And people took their place. And there are always companies that are happy to take a slice of that pie. Even bedroom developers now can take a slice of that pie. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I also read um, an interesting stat, actually, Jennifer, um, a couple of weeks ago, saying that private businesses in the U.S., their lifespan has gone from 75 years to 15 years. Yeah. And tech has played a massive part in that statistic. So if I go back to your question, um, it's all the things that we've discussed, really. It's setting a vision, continually finding the people with a drive and enthusiasm, uh, making people your asset, not technology, because technology becomes obsolete, life cycles continue to diminish. And, and so, you know, CEOs need to be passionate about that change and development and have a clear vision and use technology to achieve that vision, not use it for the sake of using it, really. So you mentioned there around the pace of change and, and, and the need for change, you know, and the fact that it's, you know, it, it's just a given nowadays. So how would you build innovation into the DNA of a business to allow them to cope with this exponential change and allow that devolved leadership to deal with it day to day? Yeah, I mean, the DNA of a business comes from the people within it and the values that are installed in it. And it sounds amazingly simple to say that. Um, and yet there's vast differences between um, the culture and speed to market of a company that has those values versus a company that doesn't have those values. And for me, ultimately, creativity comes from feeling safe to, to try something new. And that can only happen when you have that climate that's open and honest and forward thinking, where people can express themselves personally and professionally without fear or failure or, or reprimand. So leaders might not be personally personally responsible for coming up with all that creativity and innovation, but the culture that they instill within an organization can dictate whether it happens or not. Um, and there are, there are also more practical things like governance. Uh, governance is there to protect a company from risk, but creativity and innovation is hard to crack without a bit of risk. You know, it's new stuff and therefore it comes with a little risk. Um, but the gains that you can make by taking that risk make the risk seem quite marginal at times. Now, I'm, I'm not saying no governance, that would be foolish. You know, a governance model needs to exist, but it needs to change in order to accommodate the speed of business change that we're seeing now. So the key to DNA and innovation is driven by the climate and the culture that the leader instills within the organization. You need to be creative and non-threatening. Um, and sometimes you just need to accept that there's more risk associated with change than companies like to admit. And, you know, if you think back, Jennifer, now, and think of some of the most amazing companies in the world, they've all gone through that. Um, they've all gone down that road. Henry Ford went bankrupt before he cracked, cracked mass mastered mass production. Mm -hmm. um, Apple were a computer company before they took on the mobile giants. So the trick 
here is to make sure it isn't a risk too far and create an open climate. And that, that should be the DNA. Yeah, and I, I fully agree with you there. I mean, a lot of the work that we do is blending that really, the, the, the culture, the, the DNA with the structure, the governance, and then the strategy in terms of implementing where people want to go. And you're absolutely right, it's the balance and the risk profile to actually do that in a way that leads to success without hopefully leading to Henry Ford and bankruptcy. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And that's the trick of the governance, is to make sure that that, um, it's, it's not to make sure that there's no risk altogether because you'll get no make sure that the risk isn't a risk too far. Yeah, fully agree. So how can CEOs, bearing in mind that risk, usually, you know, to, to anybody, when there's a risk like that um, to achieving what a company wants to achieve, people want to get more involved and they tend to then, you know, micromanage, get involved a bit too low down in the organisation. How can CEOs keep a helicopter view and avoid being swept away in all of that, you know, maelstrom of change? And that's a, that's a really important point, Jennifer, because being business agile in a more technological world is a busy prospect. Um, and that's where realizing your limitations come in, which is one of the three or four things that I mentioned earlier. The only thing that a CEO will really be able to do in this constant flux of change is keep their eye on the vision and make sure every decision is about achieving that vision. And ultimately, you know, letting go, empowering people to do the things to reach that vision. Having a vision sets your company apart from others. Um, everybody in that company needs to know what the vision is and what their link is in that chain to achieving it. And I'm not suggesting there that there won't be intense touch points from CEOs, because that's essential. You know, governance, regular touch points, making sure that everybody's on track is essential. But Keeping your finger on the pulse is a key asset of any leader, but ultimately, change can't be managed by one person like it sometimes could in the past because of the speed of change in this technological world and the diminished life cycles of technology. Um, ultimately, that's why I say emotional leadership in these technological leadership positions is more important than ever before because paradoxically, in a world of increased uh, technology, a CEO has got to nurture those teams to deliver it because they become more removed from it. And do you think there's a difference in the UK to global markets or are these successful leadership behaviours generic? Yeah, that, I, that's a really interesting subject and I've thought about that a lot. I was thinking about that right in the book and on a, um, on a personal leadership side, I truly believe that it's generic. Because it's the kind of leadership style that is the most basic of our human needs. It's the stuff that's in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The leaders that give you know, people self-esteem and confidence are leaders that motivate. And it's not just true in business. You see it in sport and in performing arts and cooking. You know, you see it in everything. If your mm -hmm. self-esteem and confidence is nurtured, your motivation can go through the roof. Now... That's not to say that there are other forms of leadership don't work in different situations or cultures, but in my view, that's not sustainable. A dictatorial leadership style can probably work in a turnaround situation, but it's not empowering. And 
you know, faced with a world that's changing, an organisation that isn't empowered will be lacking, in my view, in, its, in the face of competition. And in now, terms of long-term sustainability, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And there'll, there'll be some subtleties and variables, I'm sure, but, you know, the two things that are the foundation of this are an empowering leadership style touches our hot buttons as humans, and therefore it's motivating. And you know, the advancements in technology now that mean that our companies, our markets and economies around the world will change whether we like it or not. And therefore, we need to continually evolve. So let's move this on to, uh, on to you a, a little bit more. Um, what leadership strategies have worked for you personally in the past that you feel will be even more useful in the future? Yeah, I guess like everybody else, you know, the things that have really touched me and the things that I will take forward are born out of the experiences that I've had and have had a couple of real sweet spots in my career. Um, and one was my first uh, job at Rolls-Royce, where I learned about emotional leadership from my first boss, a guy called Mark King. And he took a chance on me being a director in the business after six months of graduating. Um, and I so wasn't ready for it, Jennifer. I struggled for the first few months, but he believed in me so much and trusted in me that it, you know, it gave me a drive that he couldn't have got out of me in any other way. And, you know, he was the kind of guy that people would pull overnighters for to not let Mark down. He was, a, he was an amazing guy. He, he continues to be a friend after 20 years. And that was my first experience in, um, in, in a working world, really. And the second one was in a, a railway company here in the north of England. You know, my boss was a lady called Heidi Mottram, who you may know. Uh, and she was a, a real people person. And she gave me the latitude to, to manage the team how I wanted. And so when I met the team, I nurtured the doers like Mark King had taught us to do at Rolls-Royce. Um, and the results were huge. You know, I had a PA called Kath who used to do things for the team, not because um, she had to, but because she could. I had a head of stations who was my right-hand lady called Catherine who taught me more about connection with the team that I could have dreamt of. I had a head of stations called Paul who was a life and soul of the party, but also very skilled in a specialist role. And bringing that all together with a vision, acting as a team was really powerful. So having seen those sweet spots, this, for me, is the strategy that works. So everything that I do now will be all about vision, visioning. It will be all about empowerment. It will be all about creating that climate and making sure that you know we are a team, not just call ourselves a team. That people call themselves a team so easy these days that you know, there's a big difference between feeling like you're part of a team and then just feeling like you're somebody in a team. Yeah, absolutely. There's a big difference between a group and a team, isn't there? And it's in, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's interesting there that your leadership strategies, all of your examples you mentioned there, were all about relationships and all yeah. about, you know, and uh, the, the need now that it's not about the task that you're doing. It's about how well you collaborate and influence and create those relationships to actually get the job done. Yes, yeah, so, absolutely. So what what strategies and behaviours do you want to leave behind? You know, what behaviours have got you this far but you don't feel now will serve you well in the future? Um, again, it's a, real, it's a real good question. One thing I do less of now is procrastinate about the plan Bs 
seats. And you know, early on in the career, I guess it, there was a need to do that to understand what risks were, etc. But um, I don't plan Bs and plan Cs anymore. I don't look for evidence upon evidence upon evidence to move something forward. Um, because I've seen it stall progress, and sometimes I've seen companies that have started behind the curve because they've done that. And it's a hard spot to trend. Uh, sorry, it's a hard trend to spot, really, because it's a balance. So now I look for evidence how something will help achieve a vision, and then I get cracking. For me now, Plan Bs are an excuse not to achieve your Plan A when you can control all the variables clearly. Plan B should only be put in place when the variables you can't control have number the ones that you can. So you know, I procrastinate a lot less now. And with the rate of changes that business is seeing, that's going to become more important in, into the future and something that I'll continue to work on. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, we've, we've done a bit of work here around VUCA and you know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. And, um, how can CEOs use an appreciation of, of, of VUCA to, to lead their organisations through change? You know, what leadership characteristics will, will be critical in, in your opinion? Yeah, and again, this is where business agility is so important, especially in times of rapid macro changes. The ability to not procrastinate due to the unknown and actually embrace change and manage, it, manage within that chaos is absolutely critical. And it and it takes um, a growth mindset, for sure, and a team of driven individuals who are every bit as much about the team as they are about themselves. Uh, but it's an ethos of constant change. It's an appreciation that the world that we live in now um, is going to change. So you need a vision um, so that you don't get lost in that chaos. And, and that's going to be the, the key successful leadership in a technological age. Yeah. Yeah, and that's been a thread, obviously, through through our chat this morning, hasn't it, really? Yeah. So, yeah. finally then, I suppose, what's been your biggest leadership lesson? Um, for me, definitely, the it's the tipping point between working ridiculously hard to prove myself individually to the point in which I found power in everybody else. And I know that sounds crazy, it'll sound crazy to people listening to this podcast, um, because I know teams win football, not individual players, I know that teams win bike races, not individuals, I know that Richard Branson doesn't fly his own 747s over the Atlantic, you know, it's obvious stuff, yet when it's about yourself, sometimes it takes a real life situation to make a penny drop when it should be obvious, and I was lucky enough to experience some great high performance teams and how that collective achievement worked really well rather than working extremely hard on your own um, success. So and when you lead those teams yourself, it proves that theory even more. So the biggest lesson for me really was going from me to we, if you like. That's absolutely great. Thank you, Matt, for all your insights and for providing additional thoughts around leadership through technological change. If any listeners would like to obtain a copy of the white papers and research articles to support this podcast, please do visit the website or contact me. And please do get a copy of, of Matt's book, Leadership and Emotional Business, and look up his TED Talks. Uh, where, where can they be found, Matt? So the, the, the book is going to be released 
uh, earlier in this year, and the TED Talks, um, I believe, are online. Certainly the Oxbridge and the Monte Carlo TED Talks are on YouTube, and the, the Rome one's coming up in April. Fantastic. Thank you. And I hope you've all enjoyed uh, listening to our podcast. Please do listen again soon for further insights and thought leadership. So from, uh, for now, from Matt and I, goodbye.